Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 6th, 2015. Oh, today's episode has a clear, decisive theme. See if you can figure it out. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to actually put things back into context, open up the Bible, and using sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics, test to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex, to test to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, to see if they're preaching and teaching historic, biblical, Christian, orthodox theology and doctrine, or if they're twisting God's Word and teaching for shameful gain things that they ought not to teach. Now, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, like I already said, has a clear, decisive theme. And this is going to be one of those times where you need to kind of spot the things that we have in common with literally every segment that we are doing today. Everything lines up. So let's talk about what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing an extended Extended, an extended emergent church postmodernism update, if you would. And we're going to be listening to a group of different videos from different folk, uh, like Lisa Sharon Harper, Rachel Held Evans, Richard Rohr, and others. And we're going to be noting how they are using language. Here's the basic idea is that, did I don't know if you know this, but words actually have meaning. Did you know that? I, I know, because we wouldn't be able to communicate if words had no meaning. And uh, But see, the thing is, is that postmodernism just does not care. In fact, it's really radically against this idea that words convey, you know, solid meanings and things like that. As a result of it, radical postmoderns, they're always engaged in these these word games, if you would. And the way they use language is, oh, so very interesting. Yeah, so at the end of the day, you sit there and go, I, I heard words. I heard words that I was familiar with, you know, words like resurrection, gospel, things like that. 
And then, but, you know, I, I've never heard words used in this way. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. From there, after we do this kind of um, emergent postmodern, you know, potpourri, uh, I don't even know what to call this thing. It's a montage of different things. Uh, once we do that, we're going to switch gears again. And we're going to listen to audio from several media appearances by Carl Lentz. Carl Lentz is the uh, lead uh, pastor over at Hillsong, New York City. And we're going to listen to things that he said publicly regarding same-sex you know, attraction, homosexuality, and things like that to see if his words provide clarity as to whether or not Hillsong really believes that homosexual attraction, homosexual sex, homosexual marriage, uh, all things related to, you know, you know, not being attracted to somebody of the opposite sex, but being attracted to somebody of the same sex, if they actually believe it is a sin. And uh, we're going to, you know, again, note the similarities in the use of language, if you would, by Carl Lentz with some of the postmodern folk that we're going to feature at the beginning of the program. And then in hour number two, we're going to listen to a, well, a Brian Houston sermon entitled The Gospel and see if you can figure out what the gospel is based upon what <clears throat> Brian Houston says in the sermon. So that's what we're going to be doing today. It's all about listening to how language is being used, if you would, in, in, a, in a postmodern way. And so to kind of frame this, you know, I, one of the things I love to do, I like to think chiastically, not that I'm really good at it, but uh, we're going to frame today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. It's going to be bookended. So we're going to listen to a postmodern, uh, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper talking about, the, you know, trying to answer the question, what is the good news? And we'll look at the Bible to see what the Bible says about what the good news is. Pretty straightforward stuff if you actually know where to look in your Bible. And uh, and then, you know, in the end of the program, the uh, sermon we'll be listening to Brian Houston will be bookended with what we'd start off with. You, you catch what I'm saying there? Anyway, so if you haven't already figured out, because I have, like, no ability to hide it today, we're, the, today's theme has to do with the use of language and why word definitions are oh so vital and how Christians are not to be buying into the postmodern deconstruction of words and getting slippery and loose and not, you know, and just completely, well, mangling God's words and pouring our own meanings into things as if we can really do such a thing. So that's what we're going to be doing today. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since what you're going to be hearing today, there's some real bizarre stuff you're going to be hearing. I, I need to do this. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You've been warned. Here we go. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. 
sitting in today over there in the uh, kazoo section is uh, Rachel Held Evans and Richard Rohr. Now, as you can tell, the Emergent Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, they have eschewed, they have completely gone away from this idea of modernist definitions of notes, and they're just being led by the spirit. Now, let's listen in as they build to a crescendo with this wonderful rendition of Strauss's also sprung Zarathustra. Here we go. liberating, so freeing. Oh, finally we've gotten rid of that ornery classical music where, you know, they actually believe notes can actually be defined so narrowly. You know what I mean? All right, so uh, what we're going to be listening to first today, uh, th- again, this is a, a montage, if you would, of uh, emergent thinkers. These are postmoderns, and uh, these are all segments from videos put together by a company called The Work of the People. Uh, the Work of the People, a, a, a postmodern film company, if you would, dedicated to postmodern theology and, you know, things postmodern, emergent, and stuff like that. And so we're going to be listening to Lisa Sharon Harper. As she tries to answer the question, what is the gospel? Here we go. What is the good news? Yeah, what, what is it? What is the good news? Yeah. Um, and when I ask the good news, what is the good news? Um, at the heart of the gospel, I see Jesus. And Jesus is placed in history. He's yeah. placed in context. Yeah. Um, in that history, we actually have a lot of history that's told um, before. So in, in that history, there's a lot of history. So when you ask the good news, what is the good news? You find that it, the, the, in, the, in the context of the, of the history, there's a lot of history, right? Yeah. Wow. Whew. Yeah. My, my, consider my mind blown here ever even comes in John 1 or Matthew 1 or Luke 1 or or Mark 1. We actually have a lot of books that tell us about that history that he's embedded in. Yeah, so we we have a lot of books, you know, the history of the history in in the context of when asking the good news what the good news is. Wow, yeah, never thought of it that way. I wonder how much they're charging for this video. Genesis 3, you had the breaking down of all of the relationships in creation. Yeah. Relationships that God declared very good. Yeah. Very good. Very good. The first thing to fall, I'm always surprised by this when I look at it, it's not our relationship with God. The first relationship to fall is our relationship with self. Oh, no. So, so, so the, the good news has something to do with restoring our relationship with self. Yeah, wow. Never thought of that because, you know, the history within the history, when you're asking in the context of the, you know, asking the good news what the good news is, that I'd never even thought about the idea of, you know, the broken relationship with self. This is just mind-bending, you know what I mean? Shame. We run and we hide and we cover ourselves and we run and hide from each other. And that's the first relationship. Shame entered the world on the day that we decided that we knew better than God how to fill our own souls, how to get some measure of peace. What we see in the Sabbath is we see one of the greatest equalizing forces in that first uh, governance of God. You know, the Sabbath- So in the Sabbath, we see uh, equalizing of forces, yeah. 
Now, <laughs> before we get too far astride here, because apparently she's trying to answer the question, what is the gospel? And now we've segued into something to do with the Sabbath. Um, if you ever want to know how the Bible defines the gospel, the good news, well, there is a passage where it is clearly and unambiguously defined for us. It is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. I'll start there. Here's what it says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, of the, you can say good news, the euangelion, the good news that I preached to you, by which, it, it, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to what I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. So here Paul, in, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, says, I'm going to remind you, Christians at the church in Corinth, of the gospel that I preach to you. Now, the reason why this is important is because the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 1, makes it very clear that there are no other gospels and that if anyone comes and preaches a different gospel than the one that he preached, that he is to be considered anathema, damned. This is what it says. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you, you Christians in uh, the churches in Galatia, that you are so quickly deserting him, that's Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another. So Paul makes it very clear, there, there is no such thing as another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, a good news that's contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be anathema. That means damned. So as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. So the, Paul makes it very clear. This Getting the gospel right is mucho importante. And the reason it's so important is because there are other gospels floating around that are not the gospel at all. And so here we have this emergent woman, and uh, she's not helping us really understand the gospel, but Scripture does clearly define it. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received. So Paul received his gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and all the other apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the gospel in, the nut, in a nutshell, and this is what Paul received, that Christ died for our sins. Uh, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that's the good news. It has something to do, if you would, with Jesus dying for our sins. And if you want to understand what all of that means, you look at other passages that flesh that out. A good passage in particular that talks about what it means for Christ to die for our sins is found in Isaiah 53, where it talks about how he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace or the punishment that brought, brought us peace was upon him. In other words, God laid on him our sin or the iniquity of us all. 
And Christ has bled and died and has been punished in our place on the cross. And so this is why Jesus in Luke 24 tells the disciples to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. This is what we are to be doing. And you'll, when you read the book of Acts, you will see that the apostles were preachers of repentance. The gospel they proclaimed that Christ died for our sins, that the call of the gospel, the imperative of the gospel is to repent, believe the good news, be forgiven. That's the idea. So, I mean, this is not hard at all, but apparently Lisa Sharon Harper, you know, she's bought into this postmodern theology, liberalism stuff, and, uh, well, she doesn't seem any closer to explaining, you know, what the gospel is, if you know what I mean. We continue. Sabbath says all humanity, whether you are someone who is an Israelite or whether you are a foreigner in their midst, whether you are free or a slave, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are a human or an animal or the land, all creation is worthy of rest. I actively engage in the reconciliation of all things. You actively engage in the reconciliation of all things. Hmm, yeah, right. All the relationships that God declared mehoto and which were broken at the fall. So I'm actively engaging in reconciliation with myself. Yeah, she's actively engaging in reconciliation with herself. I, I'm sure that's a very difficult and, you know, probably a lifelong process, yeah. Actively engaging in reconciliation between men and women. I'm actively engaging in reconciliation between me and my environment. Actively engaging in reconciliation between me and my family and other ethnic groups and between nations. So she's actively engaging in reconciliation, you know, because, yeah, the gospel has something to do with reconciliation. But Second Corinthians chapter 5 makes it clear that we have the ministry of reconciliation, that is to go and proclaim that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by not holding men's trespasses against them. For God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. This is what Second Corinthians 5 so clearly teaches. But notice what she's, well, it's reconciliation with yourself. It's reconciliation with the environment. Yeah, that's not the, the biblical definition of the ministry of reconciliation. So notice what she's doing here. She's completely changed the definition of the word good news or gospel. Um, she's not going by the biblical definition of the word reconciliation when we're talking about in terms of the gospel. Um, and she's just kind of making stuff up. And it sounds Christian-ish. And the reason it sounds Christian-ish is because she's using words that are found in the Bible that Christians have used for two millennia. But what they mean is not the same as what Scripture means when Scripture uses those words. Get the idea. That's how the postmodern game is played, by the way. Now, here's another segment. And this one is from Rachel Held Evans. And let's see how she uses language in this video segment. We don't even know really like what we're made of as human beings. We don't, there's so much that we don't know. There's so much mystery. Uh, we, we can't see the outer edges of the universe. And it's just constant. There's so much we don't know. Most things we don't know. So All right. So we, we, there's a lot of things we don't know. I mean, 
I still have, you know, struggling with the finer points of the internal combustion engine. And I agree, there's a lot of things we don't know. So what does that mean, Rachel, when it comes to theology? To presume, well, I know exactly who will be in heaven and who will be in hell and if there's a hell and what that's like and what heaven's like and what God is exactly like. Um, that seems a little presumptuous. Yeah. Um, see, here's kind of the problem. Yeah, notice how the game is played there is that, you know, you, you start off with something that, you know, we would all universally agree upon. Yeah, granted, I have no idea exactly how the universe exactly operates. Couldn't tell you all of the finer points of every category of quantum physics, even Newtonian physics for that matter. And uh, I've personally never seen the outer reaches of the universe. Never have. Yep, and uh, and so there's a lot of things I just don't know. So notice that we start with that, and then we parallel this with, well, and then who are we to say that we know what God is like? And, you know, and who, you know, heaven and hell and things like that. Well, see, there's kind of the difference, is that uh, God actually reveals much information, much data regarding well, who he is, what he's like, what he requires of us. And he does, in his word, reveal you know, some information pertaining to eternal punishment, which is hell, and eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. So the idea, here, here's the idea, is, is that, listen, you know, I don't presume to know anything about God. I don't presume to know anything about heaven or hell, at least not on my own. But I can say this, is that with at least a fourth grade education, you know, and, you know, I shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't brag about the fact that I have a little bit more than that. Yeah, I, I've been to fifth grade, too. But with four, in my fourth grade education, I do remember, you know, my, my fourth grade teacher drilling this into our head regarding reading comprehension, that it was important to pay attention to what you read and that what you read had, you know, was conveying information that you were, well, that, that the, the writer was intending for you to understand. And so, you know, I remember all the way back to elementary school, you know, I would read bo uh, you know, books about like, you know, Dick and Jane and C-Spot Run and stuff like that. And then I would be asked questions, you know, you know, what color was Jane's dress? What did Spot want to find? You know, and you think, oh, he wanted to find the bone and think, and how did I learn this? You know how I learned it? By reading, you, you know, it's amazing. You, have you heard of these things called books? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely mind-blowing. It's, it's amazing because in a book, somebody can actually write down their thoughts and with the intention of communicating those thoughts to you so that you can understand them as well. And when I say things like, you know, I can say I understand something about the apologetic arguments of C.S. Lewis, although I've never met the man, never met C.S. Lewis. N he died before I was born. But still, I know something about C.S. Lewis. I know something about his life. I know something about where he taught, what he studied. Um, I know something about how he came to Christianity. I know something about, you know, a few things about the books that he's written and his, what he believed, you know, believed theologically. And I learned all of this without ever meeting him. Never 
having set foot in the same room as him. And you know how I got all of that information? And I know it's factually correct. is because I read his writings. And so, yeah, see, the idea here is, is that so when the postmodern plays this game with you, oh, there's so much we just don't know. <laughs> yeah, who are this presumptuous? No, it's not presumptuous. It's called reading comprehension. God communicated things to us in books that he had written and inspired by different authors through human history. It's pretty simple stuff, you know? But how should we think about heaven and how, how is it helpful or hurtful to a person's faith? Um, let me think about that. Well, I think when, when, we, when Jesus spoke about the kingdom, which was his favorite topic, he wasn't talking about this, like, palace you go to when you die. I mean, he was saying... The- yeah, how do you know that? He wasn't talking about a palace you go to when you die. I mean, that does, by the way, sound like an inaccurate uh, interpretation or understanding of what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the kingdom. So, you know, that's what we call a straw man argument, by the way, in logic. So notice that we, there's so, so presumptuous of us to talk about heaven and hell. And what's the first thing she tries to do? Make an appeal to scripture. So if you sit there and go, well, you're making an appeal to scripture. Why can't we open up the biblical text and look at what Jesus said about heaven and hell? You know, because she's making an appeal to scripture. Oh, that's presumptuous of you. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't understand. Have you ever seen the edges of the universe? Oh, oh, that's presumptuous of you to say that you can understand these things. It's among you. It's here. It's present. It's He inaugurated the kingdom with his resurrection. So, uh, you know, I think when we talk about heaven and hell, a lot of times we're making bad translations from Jesus's teachings, which are a lot more about the here and now than about some future after death. So- uh, yeah. So, I mean, she sounds like, you know, she's so educated. I mean, she's a darling among evangelicals and, you know, she's written several books published by evangelical, you know, um, publishing houses. I mean, so she, she's got to be on the level, right? So, you know, talking about heaven and hell has more to do with the here and the now than it does with the you know, the future and things like that. Well, let me um, let me read to you Jesus's words. These are red letters, by the way. Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep. From the goats. Now, notice this is talking about Jesus's return in glory, the day of judgment. This hasn't happened yet. This isn't talking about the here and the now, is it? Nope, not at all. So he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, for I was hungry, you gave me. Uh, You gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me, I was sick, and you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to see me. Uh, And then the righteous, notice it says the righteous. By the way, the judgment had already happened by based on what they are. Mm -hmm. Before there's any discussion of works, they were already separated. The judgment's already taken place. Goats on the left, sheep on the right. So then the righteous, they are righteous. Why are they righteous? Because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They will answer Jesus saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So this isn't a social justice text. Well, you're, you're, you're saved because you gave food to a hungry person. No, this is saying, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers. And when you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus makes it clear that those who believe him are his brothers. So those who are, you know, so the idea here is that Jesus sends out his disciples who are his brothers to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins and make disciples of all nations. And some peoples received these brothers of Jesus, listened to their message and were brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And when their brothers were persecuted and they were thrown in prison, and they were deprived of food and things like that. They cared for them. They clothed them. They fed them. They went and visited them in prison, things like that, because they were Jesus' brothers. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil, and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, and in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, no one no one is out there saying, no, listen, eternal life doesn't mean eternal life. It just means life for a short amount of time and then you 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 cease to exist. No, everybody believes eternal life is for eternity, right? That it's forever. And so in this so you got the same parallelism set up. Eternal punishment, eternal life. It's just that simple. So notice she's not really um, paying attention to things. She's just saying, well, Jesus, he was talking about, you know, the kingdom being among you, you know, so that means he's not talking about heaven and hell. So we can just wipe out heaven and hell. Fascinating little word game, isn't it? Yeah, that's how the postmoderns play. They don't actually engage in sound biblical exegesis, carefully defined terms based upon how the Bible is using them in context. They make these grand sweeping statements, change and modify the definitions of words in order to, well, basically smuggle in their own theology while rejecting what the Bible clearly says. And then if you say, but wait a second, this text says that they go on to eternal life and the other ones go on to eternal punishment. That is so arrogant of you. Have you seen the outer edges of the universe? It is so presumptuous of you to talk that way. That's the game that they play. We'll give another example of this on the other side of the break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Another example of kind of postmodern nonsense. And then we're going to be listening to things that uh, Carl Lentz has said in the media in the past to see if, uh, well, shed some light to see if the, he's created a lot of the confusion regarding the gay couple there. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. (laughs) 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles the pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could expose the false game of the postmodernists and their word games, which will cause you to doubt that they're actually teaching you the truth about Christianity. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we're going to continue with our emergent postmodern montage of bizarre theological statements based upon really slippery, loose language. And here's uh, Richard Rohr and uh, a video he did for the work of the people on avoiding resurrection and choosing hell. See if you can make any sense of this. Here we go. Have you ever noticed in your own thought patterns? Now, this isn't highly philosophical, theological at all. Yeah. You just observe your own mind. Yeah. And if there is something negative or problematic, yeah. you will wrap around that immediately. It, it, Watch yourself. Yeah, it just uh, yeah, it just happens so quick. Yeah, right. You can have even a moment of great joy. Yeah. And it's hard to wrap around. It's hard to sustain happiness. It really is. You have to work. You have to choose. You have to clear away the garbage to sustain honeymoons and moments of happiness. They, they Sustain honeymoons. Yeah. How long are they supposed to be, by the way? Run away. For some terrible reason, it's almost diabolical. Yeah. I mean that. We're attracted to the negative. Yeah, yeah. Joy is not easily sustained. Yeah. We lose it in a moment. It, it, so that's, I'm making the connection with resurrection. So you're making a connection there between sustained joy and resurrection. Resurrection actually means to, you know, raise a corpse from the dead. 
so that the corpse is no longer a corpse but a living human being. I mean, that's generally how the Bible talks about resurrection. Jesus was, you know, bodily raised from the grave, things like that, because he was resurrected. So how are you connecting joy to resurrection exactly? Resurrection has to be uh, not just surrendered to, but has to be recognized as such. I'm feeling really content and full right now. So resurrection needs to be surrendered to. So do I wave a white flag? How do I surrender to resurrection? How can I deeply say yes to that, you know? Yeah, how can I deeply say yes to resurrection, right? I have no idea what you mean. And allow that. Now, now I admit there are some people who want to sustain it at a superficial level. Yeah, so they want to sustain resurrection superficially. Yeah, that would be bad. I mean... Yeah, I, in fact, all those people out there are superficially sustaining resurrection, you know, just own it, man, you know, and just stop and knock that off. Yeah, that, that just isn't going to work. Comes addiction, and we're not talking about addiction, but resurrection is not our natural state. Right, yeah. So what is, <laughs> if resurrection, <laughs> right, yeah, so, so the question is, what does the word resurrection mean in any of the ways in which Richard Rohr is using it there? Uh, it just doesn't quite make any sense to me. So um, here is uh, John Philip Newell. And, um, and, and, well, let's see if any of this theology makes any sense to you, at least the, how he's using words. Here we go. Uh, rebirth, you know, how, how is that? That can be a beautiful thing, you know, uh, but obviously, you know, it, it's been hijacked. Like you say, how, how has it been hijacked? Now, the word is rebirth. How has the word rebirth been hijacked? So, which is, this is really ironic because when we talk about rebirth, Scripture talks about this. It talks about regeneration or being born again or born from above. That's kind of, you know, a biblical term, if you would. Look at the Gospel of John chapter 3. So they're going to hijack the word rebirth while bemoaning the fact that apparently the word has been hijacked. This is weird. And how can you reorient it so that maybe you might consider something bigger? And yes. What do you think? What's your indication of the rebirth? Yes. One of the reasons I love the phrase is because it's really a central mantra in Jesus' teachings. So rebirth is a central mantra in Jesus' teaching. I don't recall Jesus engaging in mantras. Which Jesus are you talking about? He is forever calling his Jesus, Jesus, uh, the rabbi, the the man who was born a Jew, lived a Jew, died a Jew, uh, but the one who. What about the Jesus who rose again from the grave? Are we talking about the same Jesus as the biblical Jesus? Because there were a lot of Jewish guys who were rabbis who lived a Jew and died Jews. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we need to distinguish that, you know, the biblical Jesus, the one who actually rose from the grave, from those other guys named Yeshua who also happened to be Jewish rabbis at the time, you know? We give central place to in our Christian inheritance. But I think it's important to keep remembering that, that, that he's Jewish. He's not, he's not a Christian. <laughs> he's not what? a good... He's not Cut. a good... <laughs> Cut. <laughs> he's not... Yeah, so Jesus isn't a Christian. Yeah, but he's the Christ. 
again, I'm hearing words here, hearing all kinds of words, but none of them are making any biblical sense at all. Now, uh, one last thing, and then we'll uh, switch gears to our Hillsong update. Um, Have you considered the art and practice of prayer, the art and practice of prayer? Yeah, here's uh, another segment. Um, See if this makes any sense to you. Whatever you do in a state of communion, yeah. connection, love, yeah. use all of them equally, yeah, so what, is prayer. Yeah. So whatever you do in a state of communion, that is prayer. Jesus, you know, the disciples came to Jesus and said, you know, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, okay, so when, whatever you do in a state of communion, that's prayer. No, he didn't say that. When He said, when you pray, say Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is Richard Rohr, by the way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? When you pray, say. So Jesus didn't mention anything about the things you do in communion. That's prayer. You do outside of a state of union is (laughs) non-prayer. Okay, so whatever you do outside of a state of union, that's non-prayer. Okay. Where, (laughs) Where are you getting this definition of the word prayer? So that's why, you know, action and contemplation can come together and really be one. Yeah. When you're acting out of a state of conscious, loving union. So when I'm acting out of a conscious state of loving union, uh-huh. With what you're doing, with God, yeah. with the person who's across from you, I sincerely believe that's the deepest meaning of prayer. Uh-huh. That's the deepest meaning of prayer. Where, where did you learn this? deeper meaning of prayer than the meaning given to us in the Bible. Strange, absolutely bizarre what we're listening to here. So you're hearing words like rebirth, prayer, heaven, hell, kingdom, you know, gospel. And what what have the postmoderns do, done? They've just totally taken the words and poured out the biblical meanings and they poured their own meanings into these words. And so at the end of the day, is their theology squaring with what scripture says? The answer is it can't because even though they're using biblical words, the meanings are totally, utterly different. So that's how postmodernism works. It's just, it's all about, you know, turning language into little balloon animals. And you can, you know, like take the balloon and turn it into, a, you know, a bunny rabbit, a horse. You can even make it into a sword, you know, if you want to. But they, I think they're pacifists, so they would, they don't want you to take the Bible and bend it into a sword. No, no, that, that, that would be out of the question. So now that's all foundation, if you would. You, you've now become, you know, if you would, exposed to how the game is played uh, in post-modernity. And that is you just ignore what the Bible says and change words and meanings and, you know, and, and whatever you feel these words should mean, well, that's profound, that's deep, because everyone's going to affirm you and your feelings and your experiences and stuff like that. But as soon as you pull out the Bible and say, but the, but, the, but the Bible says this. Oh, you are just arrogant. You are closed. How, how dare you instruct? Can you see the end of the universe with your telescope? No. So there's, it's so presumptuous. This is how they play the game. So uh, with that, we're going to uh, switch into our Hillsong update, which requires us to do this. Praise the Lord for all the cash I've got. Praising for my Rolls Royce and my yacht. Serving God ain't hard with a credit card. Jesus died so I could make a lot. 
praise the Lord, he's made us millionaires. Wave your donations in the air. We've replaced our hymns with ATMs, and soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer. Jesus Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow. Stop the sermon on the mount, he should have had a bank account. Two thousand years with interest, he'd be rolling in the dough. Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD, just forty ninety five plus GST. Hallelujah, Lenny and Moolah, solid gold baubles on my Christmas tree. I've got all of heaven's riches, thanks to all you stupid people. Christianity, yeah. Whoever said religion should be free? Yeah, that's right. They have a hundred million dollar a year media empire that they need to be, well, maybe multiple hundreds of millions of dollars a year media empire that they need to protect, you know. And so what we're going to be listening to today is, well, different media appearances by Carl Lentz as he appeared at the Huffington Post on Katie Couric's program, as well as on CNN, to hear what he's said, you know, regarding the issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality, to see if Carl Lentz has created some of the confusion that, that is swirling about out there regarding the controversy about the fact that they had a very famous homosexual couple there who claims that they're devout Christians and they go to Hillsong, New York City. Um, you know, and of course, my question is, how can a, you know, same-sex couple believe that they're devout Christians while attending Hillsong, New York City? Doesn't seem to make any sense to me. So here's uh, Carl Lentz's appearance at the Huffington Post, and uh, they will discuss some of these issues. Here we go. Patient with each person. What? I didn't even know that was in there. That's annoying. If this is uh, Carl Lentz exegeting of Thessalonians 5.14 from the message paraphrase. Everybody? I'm going to check some commentary to make sure that doesn't mean everybody. Be attentive to individual needs. That's interesting. Isn't that cool? That's why some churches want us to give blanket answers on huge issues. Well, my Bible says be attentive to individual needs. So, I'm not gonna- so that, notice what he did there. From the message par- paraphrase. Talking about encouraging everybody, be patient with each person and attentive to individual needs from the message paraphrase. And so he's using that as basically a proof text to say, hey, people want us to be clear about the issue of homosexuality. But First uh, Thessalonians uh, you know, 5.14 from the message says that we need to you know, be attentive to individual needs. So that requires us, according to this verse, to not be clear about the uh, what the bible says about homosexuality that's how he's using this make polarizing political statements about certain things in our christian community right now no matter who says what we won't be pressured into giving blanket statements to individual needs never (laughs) never um speaking of diversity you know new york city one thing that is polarizing to some communities especially within religion is homosexuality and the debate around it I mean, how do you balance those two things? I mean, are people of all sexual orientations welcome? And, and how do you see that? Absolutely. I think what I was referring to there was, you know, some people would be like, you need to make that, you, you need to answer our questions about 
the homosexuality issue. And I always say, I do. You just don't like my answers. And here's exactly what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. the, some media wants us to use our pulpit mm -hmm. to uh, have a soapbox for social issues. I don't believe that's our job. I don't believe Jesus did that. You go look at what Jesus did. He was always talking about the heart of an individual. Yeah, homosexuality, although it is a political, social issue, it is a moral issue. It is a sin, and the Bible addresses it. Now, I would remind Carl that uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 makes it clear that the job of the pastor is to preach the word in season and out of season. So notice Carl is a pastor. He claims to be a pastor in Christ's church. And God's word gives very specific orders to pastors. Pastors are ambassadors, if you would. They've been given a message from the king, and they are not to alter the message, nor are they to take part of it away. So he here is saying, well, some people want us to speak out on this or to do this, that, or the other thing, but we've come up with our own idea. And my, my issue is is that how he, we just saw him use First uh, Thessalonians 5.14 is reprehensible and a twisting of God's word. And I need to remind him, he is under orders from God himself in the Pauline letters to preach the word. The job of a pastor is to preach the word. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, talks about the fact that because he had proclaimed the full counsel of the word of God to the church in Ephesus, that he was innocent of their blood. And so there is a sense in which Scripture teaches that the job of a pastor is not only to preach the Word, but the full counsel of the Word of God. And so we have a message to proclaim, and the message comes from Christ, and the message is in the Scripture. So the job of a pastor is to preach the Word. But he seems to think that, uh, well, they at Hillsong have a different mission, so to speak. And he as a pastor is somehow exempt from speaking clearly on something that has become a political social issue, but first and foremost, it is an issue regarding our sin. We continue. And the soul of a person, not these symptomatic societal problems. And people hate that because a lot of churches are about what they're against. We're about what we're for. And when it comes to people's sexuality, I don't want to use a public forum to yeah. talk about private things. Because how. Whoa, 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 you don't want to use a public forum to talk about private things. But if you preach the full counsel of the word of God and you are doing what God's word has told you to do, then you as a pastor must speak out about homosexuality, that it's a sin, that Christ has bled and died for that sin, just like he's died for the sin, sins of adultery, of murder, of theft, of idolatry, of slandering and lying. You have to speak about these things because, you know, sin happens publicly and it happens privately. And God's word defines sin and doesn't make a distinction. Say, well, listen, you pastors out there, you only need to use the public forum of the church, which is the house of God. You only use that public forum for other things to speak only of what you're for, never of, of what you're against. You no, know, Second Timothy chapter 4 makes it clear that we are to preach the word in season and out of season. That's the job of the pastor. He doesn't get to pick and choose what he wants to do. So notice, he's playing postmodern word games here. And it sounds so pious and stuff like that, but the assumptions are wrong. How in the world can you have a dialogue? How in the world can I hear your story? How in the world can someone have a question? So if I, if I stand up in a pulpit and I just start railing at something or make a statement in, in a newspaper about something, 
I, I believe it's insensitive to the journey that people are walking yeah. on. And our church is going to protect people no matter where you're from, no matter what you carry, no matter what kind of um, orientation. Yeah, again, the job of a pastor is to preach the word, which requires us to preach law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. So when you read God's word and you preach God's word, God's word is going to rail against our sin. And it's going to confront us with our sin and unbelief. It's going to convict us of our sin. And then we preach the gospel as the solution. Christ died for our sins. So the idea here is, is that we, you know, we're not out there preaching as if we're somehow moral and righteous. No, Christianity isn't for moral and righteous people at all. Christianity is for sinners. And Christians are not moral and righteous in and of themselves. They are forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So notice what he's doing. He's creating this false dichotomy and giving himself some kind of an exemption to what God's word commands him to do. Not me, but God's word. We continue. You feel like is your, um, you know, lane of life to run in. Um, you know, I want to have a conversation about it. We have a stance on love. Yeah. And we have conversations about everything else. Well, you have a stance on love and you have conversations about everything else. Where did the Bible instruct pastors to have a stance on love and, and then have conversations about everything else? I can't think of a single passage of Scripture that says this is what they're to do, nor did I see the disciples doing that when they, in the book of Acts when they went out and preached Christianity and Christ crucified and risen for our sins and for our justification. You see how this is what's creating the problem? I, lo- I mean, I love that, and that makes sense to me, because when you say you, know, you have a stance on love and you're talking about hearts and souls— I often see, you know, people want to focus on homosexuality and and the gay marriage issue and whether they should be allowed to get married. And a lot of homosexual couples are looking around saying, I just love this person with all my heart and soul, so I'm looking for some support. Do you feel like it's you're not in a position to give them support on that issue or do you feel like it's just not your lane it's not, i don't it's not my job to be people's judge and jury yeah. if i sat down with them yeah it's your job to preach the word though christ is the judge and he's already clearly made it clear that there are sins that have to be addressed and forgiven because they're bled and died for, and they need to be repented of. And then those who are repenting of their sins and trusting Christ for the forgiveness of their sins bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what Scripture teaches. So watch what he does here. Homosexual couple, and they asked me what I thought about their relationship. I would tell them, mm-hmm. and it would be at their table, and it would be our business. But... Their situation is different than the next situation. And often people get these two words mixed up, Mm -hmm. acceptance and approval. Like, I don't necessarily, if someone comes to my church, I don't have to approve of every single thing in their life because that's not my job. I'm not God. But my job is to accept you as I have been accepted. Yeah, no, actually your job is, again, to preach the word. Christ forgives sins. And people are reconciled to God through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And Christ himself in Luke 24 has told us to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So notice he's created these other categories, acceptance and all this nonsense. And it's not my job to do this or not my job to do that. But I could, again, I just point to 2 Timothy 4. His job, though, is to preach the word, all of it, not shave any of the hard edges off. So he's playing a postmodern word game. Everything in my life, God accepted me. So acceptance and approval. No, actually, God didn't accept you. God forgave you. 
if you're a penitent sinner and you're trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God doesn't accept you. He forgives you. Big difference. Draw a really cool line in there because it's like, look, I'm not going to tell you. There's a lot of people who will come into our church, leave and go, no thanks. I don't want to change my, I don't want to live. I don't want to believe that. And I say, good for you. That's your job. You have to answer to God for your life, not me. Yeah. So why is this on me? So right. people are always like, what do you think about homosexuality? I'm like, I love my wife. I'm married. You're asking the wrong guy. Um, but that's just to be funny. But I, I do believe it's such a, a sensitive issue. I have gay friends. Yeah. I have uh, people that I love that are right in the thick of that kind of debate. Right. And I just refuse to uh, ostracize people any longer. I hate it. I think that there's been so much hate and so much bigotry and so much insensitivity that... uh, How is it hateful to tell a sinner, regardless of their sin, that they need to repent and that Christ has bled and died for their sins and that they can be reconciled to God through belief and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? How is that hateful? How does that ostracize? Now, granted, there are people who are just... They don't... they want you to accept them the way they are, and they want to stay, and they want God to bless their set, their their sin. That ain't gonna happen. But the job of a pastor is to preach the word, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So notice he, he's not doing that, and he's making it very clear that he doesn't believe that it's his job to do that. Um, I'm done with that. And so the people who criticize us for it, yeah. I, li- I like making those people mad because yeah. no, they, they are who they are. And I think if we focus on love, it'll all fix itself out. If, if all people just focus on love, I, I, at least that's my personal belief. Um, I do want to so you know before you go, yeah. G- before you, Jesus said to do two things. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And, then he said, and that's the law. Jesus was asked, what is the, you know, to, you know, what are the most, most important commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All sexual sin, regardless of whether or not it is heterosexual or homosexual, is a breaking of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And that, and see, that's the thing. He's ending with the law, not the gospel. The law shows us that we don't measure up. The law is summarized as love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And now you just ask the question, how are you doing on that? Because that's the standard. Have you lived it? No, you haven't. So we got a big, big, big problem here with Carl Lentz. Another example of this. We wanted to know where Lentz falls on social issues and politics. My thing is that Jesus transcends politics. So whether I'm right wing, left wing, Democrat, Republican. You're going to tell us? Uh, no, that wouldn't be any fun. Some Christians say you can't even be. Now, this is from a CNN interview that uh, aired, uh, I think, a couple of years ago with Carl Lentz. So listen to what he does with this. He's a Democrat and even followed Jesus. I, that really bugs me. Some of his positions are clearer than others. Don't get drunk. No sex before marriage. Are gay men and women. So notice, uh, according to CNN, Carl uh, Lentz has no problem saying drunkenness is, is something you should not do and no sex before marriage. So apparently he's clear about that. And welcome in the church. Absolutely. We have a lot of gay men and women in our church, and I pray we always do. Yeah, they should be welcome to come and hear the gospel. I, I agree with that. It's not our place to tell anyone how they should live. It's, that's their journey. Uh, yeah, so there's his wife, Mrs. Lentz, saying that it's not our job to tell anyone how they should live. That's their journey. Again, the job of a pastor is to preach the word, which is means that uh, 
yeah, you're going to end up telling people that the way they're living is sinful. You know, I would think about the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians. There was a guy in, you know, at the church at Corinth who was sleeping with his father's wife. And the Apostle Paul made it clear you're to put that guy out of the church. So, I mean, how do you come up with this idea? It's not our job to tell people how they should live. If you tell them that drunkenness is, yeah, that's not okay. Uh, you know, sex before marriage, that's not okay. But then when it comes to homosexuality, it's not our job to tell people how they should live. Huh. Weird. Every article I've read about you guys says he declined to discuss gay marriage. Yeah, it's a misquote because I do discuss it, just not the way people want me to. When it comes to homosexuality, I refuse to let... Uh, another human being or uh, uh, a immediate moment. Uh, how about God's word? Do you, do you permit God's word to tell you how you should talk about it? Take how we approach it. Jesus was in the thick of uh, an era where homosexuality, just like it is today, was wildly prevalent. And I'm still waiting for someone to show me the quote where Jesus addressed it on the record in front of people. You won't find it because he never did. Yeah, and like I pointed out the other day, Jesus never said anything about bestiality. He never said anything about pedophiles. Never said anything about a lot of the sins that are covered very clearly in the Old Testament texts in the moral law. So, um, and the reason why he didn't need to is because he's God in human flesh. And Jesus affirms that the Old Testament is God's word. So, yeah, I mean, using his logic, I mean, we, I don't, I don't recall Jesus ever knocking polygamy either. You know, man, I mean, this, it's just kind of anything goes based upon this theology. So you see what I'm saying here? It's like, yeah, the confusion there regarding the uh, survivor couple, the same sex couple, um, I think a lot of that was created by um, Hillsong's vagaries when it comes to this topic. Last example comes to us via the Katie Couric program. Here's Katie Couric and Carl Lentz discussing this issue. And how do you feel about sort of the tolerance issue that I was talking to Joel about? I mean, yeah. I mean, do you guys have positions on, say, gay marriage and things like that? We have uh, a stance on love and everything else we have conversations. A stance on love and everything else we have conversations. Does that sound like an evasive answer to you? I mean, she's asking a man who is who is portraying himself as a Christian pastor. And the job of a pastor is to preach the word. We have a message that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We're to call men to repent and to be forgiven. This is what Jesus says. And so it's real simple. God has a stance regarding homosexuality and that it is a sin. Christ has bled and died for these sins and that we are all about proclaiming Christ's forgiveness and calling sinners to repent, be forgiven, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But no, no, no. We have a, we have a position on love and everything else as a conversation. Does this sound like Peter? Does this sound like the Apostle Paul? Does this sound like Jesus? So what does that mean? Exactly that. <laughs> um, often people want you to make these big statements yeah, about things, and I don't believe it's fair. I don't think a public forum is always the best place to talk about something that's so sensitive and important to so many, because a public forum, there's no discussion there. And yeah, because the job of a pastor is to preach the word in a public forum, you know, God's house. 
Everybody's situation is unique. So I've been with some people who are, you know, make a statement about this, and I'll say, why? I'd rather have a conversation with that person because if I make a statement publicly, um, there's no discussion, there's no explanation, there's just this comment. And uh, yeah, Jesus didn't call you to have a conversation. He called you to preach the word, to proclaim the truth, call sinners to repent, and to be forgiven. Just to play devil's advocate, I mean, do you feel like... That's hard for you because you're so sweet. (laughs) But but do you feel like, you know, you have a moral imperative to... Yeah, a moral imperative, like, you know, from the written word of God. Katie Couric is on to this, and she realizes, wait a second, the Bible talks about this. Doesn't he, as a pastor, have a moral imperative to publicly proclaim what God's word says? She's on to him. Publicly about some of these more controversial issues. No, because we try to be like Jesus. Very rarely did Jesus ever talk about morality. Oh, yeah. So Jesus rarely talked about morality, although Jesus is God in human flesh and God's word talks about morality very explicitly. And so did the apostles. So look what he's doing here. He's playing a postmodern word game social issues. He was about the deeper things of the heart. And often people want to talk about behavior modification. Our church isn't about that. You can get behavior modification doing yoga or um, going to a karaoke thing. How about sins forgiven? How about forgiveness of sins? Are you about that? Change a little bit about you. We're about soul transformation. So you start talking about some of the symptomatic stuff. That's not what we're about. We're about talking to people about their heart and their condition of their soul. And some of that- which is sinful. Jesus makes it clear that out of the heart comes all kinds of vile sin. Right? Yeah. Outworks itself. But we're not trying to change anybody because we can't. Okay. So there you go. That's a little bit of a montage of uh, Carl Lentz, and based upon his public statements. What do you expect that you would hear at Hillsong when it comes to the issue of homosexuality? Based on what I've heard, you're not going to hear what the Apostle Paul says on it. You're not going to hear what God uh, revealed to Moses about this. You're not going to hear what Jude writes about it. You're not going to hear anything like that uh, because it's unfair to discuss these things in public because Jesus rarely ever talked about moral things at all. He was more concerned about the things of the heart, says Carl Lentz without any clear reference to any biblical passage, just his grand sweeping statement, which basically means that he's not proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And my concern for Carl is that he's at the end of the day, is going to have the blood of all of these people on his hands because he refused to do what Christ told him to do, and that's to preach the word, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, regardless of what the sin is, and to, by preaching the word, talk about the full counsel of the word of God, which then does tell people that the the things they're doing are wrong and that they need to be forgiven, and then it tells them what it means to do right as well. God has revealed all of these things. And all of this is nothing more than a postmodern word game. It's akin to what we heard all of the emergence doing at the first part of this hour. I think you get the point. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to a Brian Houston sermon entitled The Gospel. Let's see if we hear the gospel in it. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc., but simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engaged stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. We'll be listening to a Brian Houston sermon about the gospel, but yeah, hang on. We're getting, like I said, we bookend this episode. We started off with a segment on what is the good news, a.k.a. gospel. We're going to end off with a sermon on the gospel, but I, we got to go through our standard traditional procedure here. Hang on. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via hillsong church sydney australia brian houston presiding the name of the sermon is entitled the gospel and uh, we've already done a segment where we've gone into the biblical text 
and we've looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1, and have looked at how the Bible, how God's Word clearly defines the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation that Christ died for our sins and was raised again from the scripture, uh, according to the scriptures on the third day. That's the idea. So Christ dies for our sins. It has something to do with the forgiveness of sins, repentance, forgiveness of sins, trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That all has to pertain to the gospel, if you would. So we're going to see if we're going to get a clear preaching of the gospel in the sermon entitled The Gospel by Brian Houston, or if we're going to hear a lot of postmodern word obfuscation, if you know what I mean. So let me back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is Brian Houston and his sermon entitled, The Gospel. Here we go. Help us to be before you on our knees, and Lord, at that moment, may we soar into the promise and the purpose of an almighty God. Lord, I just thank you for what you're doing in our service. We're so excited for what you're about to do right across our church. Father, we just thank you that we can be people who represent a dangerous declaration. The power of the message. Yeah, there we go again. B- dangerous declaration. We did a sermon review on that sermon regarding the dangerous declaration. And if you were listening to it and paid attention, you will n- remember that I noted how frustrated I was because he kept saying that Jesus made a dangerous declaration. And I kept asking, well, what was his dangerous declaration exactly? Uh, Can you tell me the words he spoke that were so dangerous in his declaration? And Houston never told us what Jesus said that was so dangerous when he declared something. So, you know, here he's referencing, oh, this dangerous declaration. But I have no clue what Jesus' dangerous declaration was still to this day. It totally behooves me. But uh, we continue. Of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Can you say amen? I want to speak about the greatest of all manifestos. All right, so we're going to talk about a manifesto. All right, so will this be clearer than the dangerous declaration, which I still have no clue what Jesus' dangerous declaration actually was? I want to speak about the most dangerous of all declarations. This is the most dangerous of them all. Will this have more clarity to it than the other dangerous declarations? Simply speak about the gospel. All right. So the, I, and I know what the gospel is. I've read 1 Corinthians 15. It's the proclamation that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, was raised again on the third day. You know, that, I, I got it. I've, I know what the Bible says regarding what the gospel is. So that's what you're going to preach on, right? When you think of the gospel, what do you think about? 1 Corinthians 15, verses like 1 through 7, 1 through 8. Yeah, that's what I think about. Christ died for our sins, was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's what I think about is when I hear the word gospel, because that's how the Bible defines it. Right. Some people reduce the gospel just down to an evangelistic message or maybe a gospel crusade. Certainly you can preach the gospel, but there is so much more to the gospel than just a sermon or a particular style of message. Um, how about the gospel is an actual message? I mean, good news kind of implies that there's news that's good to be proclaimed. You know what I'm saying? Some people, somehow, they see the gospel as being hellfire and brimstone. 
Yeah, no, the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins. So those who think the gospel is hellfire and brimstone, they're confusing the gospel with the law. Some people turn the gospel into something angry, into some finger pointing, bringing judgment. Some people see themselves as gospel priests. They're like apologists for the gospel who tell people what the gospel is. And sadly, they make it so small and so mean. And sadly, I think... You mean like the Apostle Paul who said that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel than the one you receive, let him be damned? Like the gospel police that, you know, Paul was. Yeah, right. So, yeah, he he's not really clearly defining words here. And um, notice he didn't start off with a biblical text, not a good sign. Totally unreflective of everything that Jesus Christ was about, that it diminishes and shrinks the gospel. And so I had one such gospel policeman on Twitter one day. So he gave me the gospel in 140 characters. He managed to fit in wrath, hell. He managed to fit in angry. And he managed to fit in repent. Yeah, well, the the imperative of the gospel is to repent and be forgiven. Yeah, so right. And did he mention the forgiveness of sins? Well, the Bible says it's appointed unto every man once to die and after that the judgment. I have no doubt there's a heaven and a hell. But he had no room in his gospel for love, no room for forgiveness, no room for grace. Sadly, some people... They see the so he's met, he thinks the gospel has something to do with forgiveness. I'm glad to, to hear that. Forgiven of what exactly? Oh, as the vindictive writings of an angry God. I believe it is the beautiful, beautiful, refreshing words of a loving Savior, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The- yeah, the words of a loving Savior. Correct. Can you specify exactly? what that means, okay? Because, you know, we we say love, that can mean a lot of things. For instance, Scripture itself says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. That's in the book of Romans. So the idea here is is that, right, the, the gospel, Christ dying for our sins, has everything to do with the love of God. Will he proclaim that? Well, let's see. No better news than the gospel. And we are so honored to be people who can live by the gospel. It is such a great honor to be the messenger when the message is so beautiful. Yeah, what exactly is the message? I agree. The the message of the gospel is beautiful. Can you please elucidate, you know, and define and maybe open a biblical passage and show us what the message itself is? entails what the words are pertaining to that message of the gospel there is no more beautiful message there is no greater manifesto there is no more dangerous declaration but dangerous in all the right ways because you're in danger that it will change your life you You know i agree can you tell me what the message of the gospel is exactly in danger that it will heal your broken life. You are in danger that your past will be forgiven and all of a sudden you'll have a brand new future and a brand new hope. Okay, so it has something to do with my past being forgiven. What about my present? (laughs) What do you mean by forgiven? What parts of my past need to be forgiven? Can you give me some details, please? is a dangerous declaration. And I look around the world and I think about some of the atrocity that's done under the name of God. 
Just some of the depravity you cannot believe that people could be so depraved. And you think about the gospel, how that Jesus came from his place well beyond gravity so he could reach humankind at their deepest depravity. And you understand the beauty and the power of the great gospel, Jesus. So you understand that humans have depravity. Can you define that? Give me examples of what it means to be depraved. How would I know what depravity looks like? Can you show me from scripture how depravity is defined he began after coming out from the desert in luke chapter 4 in verse 16 all the way up to verse 19 and verse 18 he says the spirit of the lord is upon me because i believe the holy spirit whenever he is in our life or on our life there's a because there's a reason there's a purpose he's- yeah he's supposedly reading uh, luke 4:18 from the new king james so whenever the Spirit is upon you, there's a because. Yeah, that's a twisting of Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel. Literally, the good news. The gospel is good news. That's why to be the message. Yes, it is. I agree. The gospel is the best news ever. Can you tell me what the news is again? A pastor is such a joy because the message is so beautiful. Jesus said that he came, that the Holy Spirit was on him so that he could preach the good news to the poor. He had an answer to people's poverty so he could bring healing to broken hearts, so that he could bring liberty to those who were bound, that he literally could speak sight to those who were blind, that he was able to bring release to those who were oppressed. And ultimately he said to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, the acceptable year of the Lord is the year of Jubilee. Jubilee, 50 years. It's a year where back in Old Testament days, every debt was forgiven. Every slave was set free. Right. So the Jubilee typologically points us to the gospel. I agree. And talking about debt being forgiven. What is the debt that I owe God exactly? And what does it mean to be forgiven of that debt? Can you give me some details, Brian, please? Jesus, he is talking about the gospel and its power to set people free, to forgive debt, to give you a new beginning and a new hope. Right. Forgive debt. What kind of debt exactly? Um, Can you give me some details, please? Nothing more powerful than the beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He has lots of accolades to say regarding the gospel. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's, oh, yeah, it's just good. Yeah, I agree. It's good news. It's glorious. It's all of those things. Details, please. What does the message of the gospel say exactly? Gospel, it is. The good news gospel. Could you think of anything worse than being the policeman who has to knock on someone's door in the still of the night with a horrible horrible news that a tragedy has happened to somebody's son, to somebody's daughter. I couldn't think of anything worse. Someone has to do that job. But I think about the beauty of the opportunity when it comes to the best of all news. Don't ever underestimate what we have in our hand with the gospel. The gospel to me is the entire content of the message of Jesus. It and the, 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 the gospel to me is the entire content of the message of Jesus. Now we, gotta, we have to be very careful here. And what I mean by that is, is that when we talk about gospel, there is a sense you can talk about gospel in a wide sense. 
And the wide sense is this, is that when we read the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, yeah, that is the good news for sure. And the gospel, the word, the way gospel is being used there is it's talking about everything that Jesus fulfilled, taught, accomplished, you know, things like that. Um, that's the gospel in the wide sense. The gospel in the narrow sense, the way Paul's using it in 1 Corinthians 15, is the message that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, yeah, so he's here now slipped into the wide sense of the of the word gospel, making some reference to the narrow sense and saying how glorious it is, but not giving us any specifics as to what is the message of the gospel in the narrow sense. And he's just using this. It's everything that Jesus did. Well, yeah, you can use gospel in that sense, but can you, you know, you kept referring to how glorious it is in the narrow sense, but you're not giving us the details of the narrow. Weird. Everything that Jesus represents, the gospel, it's not small, it's not angry, it's not something that shrinks and diminishes. I don't believe the gospel is only for a few people. I believe that all men may know, that all may come. And I think about the wonder and the grace of Jesus Christ. Aren't we blessed to represent such a beautiful, glorious message? Aren't we blessed that we can be... Yeah, I agree. We're blessed to represent, more than represent, to actually preach the message of Christ's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Can you please give us the details of Jesus' grace, mercy, and forgiveness? I'd like to actually have you read that out and proclaim it, you know, and then tell people to repent and be forgiven, things like that. Because when, you know, repentance and the forgiveness of sins go hand in hand with the biblical definition of the gospel, you know? Who represent the blessing of God. To me, the gospel, the story that I think portrays it most is the story that they call the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. But an actual fact... Great gospel parable, I agree. Can you talk about how that plays out? Luke 15, it starts that the kingdom is like a father and his two sons. Well, actually, I got to make a little bit of a correction here. This is uh, Luke chapter 15 is a very important passage in scripture. And Jesus is telling one parable and there's three kind of looks at it because here's the context. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, which, by the way, is fantastic, okay? Why? Because they're hearing the forgiveness of their sins. They're being called to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But here's what's happening. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. To which you basically say, um, yeah, last time I checked, Pharisees, you guys were all descendants of Adam and Eve as well, and that means that you're sinners too, So the Pharisees are self-righteous, and they're looking down on all the so-called sinners who are coming to Jesus, not really realizing they're sinners as well. And so here's what it says. So he told them this parable. So notice what verse 3 says. He told them this parable. And it begins, the parable begins not with the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is one of three parables that are really one parable. Here's what it says then in verse 4. What man of you, 
Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. So I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner, who repents. So notice here, the parable of the prodigal son is not to be understood apart from the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And there is there are what it are the pictures of what it looks like for a sinner to be brought to repentance. They are found by their Savior. That's an important thing, and it's all part of the gospel. And so then the story of the of the prodigal son is a gospel story, if you would. And it's about repentance and being forgiven, about a sinner who repents and is forgiven. So then it says this, verse 11, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now notice here, the younger son basically says, Dad, I want you dead, I'm, and I want my inheritance. All I care about is the inheritance, and you're in the way. Since you won't drop dead, give me the inheritance. He cares nothing about his father. So he takes his inheritance, and he squanders it on reckless living. And it says this, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So notice here, the son, well, he comes to his senses. This is a miracle, by the way. And he goes to confess to his father that he has sinned before heaven and before him. And he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the son still thinks that he needs to strike a bargain with his dad. So he's going to confess his sins and then try to make a bargain with his dad. That's what he's going to, you know, to do. But watch what happens. So he rose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, here's the confession, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. True confession of sin right there. So notice he's repentant, he's confessed his sin, and before he can get his bargain out, the father interrupts him. 
Father's not going to hear, hear anything about any bargains. This isn't about his son now becoming a servant. And the father doesn't say, you're, you're right. You were absolutely horrible to treat me as if I were dead. And you've, now you've taken part of, the, you know, of our family's property and inheritance and you've squandered it. So, yeah, you're right. You, you worthless. That's not what the father does. Here's what it says. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So notice this is all about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and God's love, mercy, compassion grace so much so they're going to kill the fatted calf now keep this in mind in the parables oftentimes different characters represent god or jesus and things like that um so in this text the father really i think represents god the father this the prodigal son well that's all of us we're all sinners this is what we've done to god and the fatted calf that's killed that's jesus jesus is the one crucified killed for our sins. You see what I'm saying here? He's the sacrificial animal. So keep that in mind. But then the story continues. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he had received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. So notice this son now shamefully treats his father. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. And when his, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that, I, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. You see the point? Okay, so this is a great text, but let's see if Brian Houston actually addresses, well, maybe he will, we'll see. See if he addresses repentance, forgiveness of sins, and talk about you know those kind of important things that go along with the gospel as it's proclaimed and then ha as it has its impact on those whom it is preached to. Let's see. Perhaps one of those sons, he took his share, his portion of his inheritance. He went to the big smoke, to the city. He got involved in prodigal living. He wasted everything that he had. He ended up destitute. There was a famine. Finally, he found himself with nothing. So he attached or joined himself to someone who left him eating what the pigs ate, the leftovers from the pig, until finally the Bible says he came to his right mind. When he came to his right mind, he began to think about his father. He began to think about the blessing of the father and he decided that he would go back to the father. And this was not an angry father who told him, don't you come near my house with all you've done to waste my fortune. No, this was a father. When the son approached, he says, my father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. And No, actually, the son didn't get to say that part. He wanted to say that. Instead, he said, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
That's what the son says. It's an important piece here because he confesses his sin. Father, the Bible says he ran towards him. That's how I see the gospel. That's how I see God the Father. The Bible describes he ran to his son. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. My sons are still prodigal. They're still in the big city in America. So I had to choose my son-in-law, which is not a bad second best. The gospel is good news. Listen to Galatians. Yeah, I, again, it is good news, and you still haven't yet given us any of the specifics of that good news. Weird. Chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Here the Apostle Paul's talking to those in Galatia. And, of course, people are turning back toward the law that Jesus had set them free from. And in verse 6, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You see, it goes on and says, which is actually not another, so it is the same gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Some people talk about a prosperity gospel. There is only one gospel. It is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I agree. There is only one gospel, and I'm glad you referenced Paul in Galatians chapter 1 talking about how there isn't another gospel. Paul, specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, gives us the definition and the actual words used of his gospel so that we can be reminded of what it is. So are you going to reference 1 Corinthians 15 now? Because Paul makes it clear what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel of grace. And yes, within the power of that gospel, Jesus wants to bless people. Jesus wants to cause people to be fruitful. But there is only one gospel. So notice he makes an allusion to, and it sounds like a defense of um, the uh, prosperity gospel. Um, saying Jesus wants you to be fruitful and stuff, and that's not the gospel. Weird. Here it's talking about those who wanted to pervert. And there'd be some who would say, oh, that's people who try to turn it into a gospel of money. It's not talking about that at all. It's actually talking about those who are wanting to take it back to what Jesus had redeemed them free from, from bondage and the law. That's what it was. Uh, bondage to sin, yes. Um, yeah, and he, Paul here is wanting to make sure that they're not, the gospel does not put them back under the bondage of the law. Not very careful with his words now, is he? Talking about there is only one gospel. And let's never, ever live with a watered-down, perverted gospel. Let's understand the grace of Jesus. Let's yeah, in order to understand it, we're going to need biblical words to help us clearly understand what the gospel message is. You haven't given us any of those words yet. Understand the beauty of the message, that message for which I am honored to be the messenger tonight, and never underestimate the beauty and the power of the gospel. I agree. It's powerful and it's beautiful. Can you tell me the words of that gospel again? Give me some specifics. Not a different gospel. It's not a gospel of men. And we ought to thank God for that because many times people are harder on other people than God is. I've sat on committees and executives where maybe someone has made mistakes in the past and they're trying to make their way back. And I've heard people on executives say, with sweeping statements, they never change. They never change. And I think to myself, thank God you're not God. 
because that's not the spirit of the gospel. Yeah, so it sounds like he's talking about leaders who've committed sins who were removed from ministry. I Hard to tell what the referent was there. In Galatians chapter 1, still, verse 11 and 12, it says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's not just the words of men. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, Paul says, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. It did. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians makes it very clear that the gospel that he's reminding them of is the gospel that he received, the gospel he received from Jesus himself. So, you know, Paul is making reference to that. First uh, Corinthians 15.1, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand by, which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So the gospel that Paul preached is clearly laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1, 11 through 12 makes it clear he got this not from man, but from a revelation from Jesus himself. This is correct. Now, can you give us the specifics of the gospel that Paul preached? That would require you to go to 1 Corinthians 15, Brian gospel it gives us a revelation of the savior it gives us a revelation of jesus that's the great manifesto that's the dangerous declaration that's what i'm doing here we go again with this dangerous declaration talk without any specifics as to what the declaration is it's an important manifesto but i won't tell you what the actual words of the manifesto are the gospel's brilliant it's it's gracious it's loving it's most amazing thing but i'm not going to tell you what it says to be the messenger for i can be the messenger of the greatest of all messages it's not a different gospel it's not a gospel of men it's not a gospel of law or works in galatians 3 paul is getting frustrated listen to what he says verse 1 and in verse 2 listen to it oh foolish galatians who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Okay, so now we're in Galatians 3. So, all right, so here we go. All right, he, he mentioned the fact that Jesus was crucified. Why was he crucified, Brian? It's only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's- so apparently he's making the case here that the gospel and the law are different. This is true, and this is a good distinction. But we still need to know what the gospel is you haven't told us in this sermon called The Gospel. Which, by the way, you can find this on YouTube, on the Hillsong's uh, YouTube channel. This is what I'm playing this from. In the context of the gospel. And he's saying, why are you being so foolish? Why are you trying to take this thing back to the law? When the only way to Jesus is through faith. In the J.B. Phillips translation of the same verse. Here it is. Oh, you dear idiots. At least they're dear idiots. You dear idiots of Galatia who saw Jesus Christ the crucified so plainly who has been casting a spell over you. I will ask you one simple question. Did you receive the Spirit of God by trying to keep the law or by believing the message of the gospel? So he's he's making a perfectly good, and I mean and I mean this, a, an important distinction. 
We are not saved by works of the law. We are saved by grace through faith in the good news. But notice he hasn't told us what the good news is yet. He's described it. He's used hyperbolic language and superfluous adjectives and adverbs to, you know, give all kinds of accolades to the gospel, but he hasn't yet actually told us what the gospel and its declaration is. Weird. Let's not live our lives lowering the gospel down to anything other than the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, we do have a good gospel. It's good news. Healing to the brokenhearted. Liberty to the bound. Sight to the blind eye. Yeah, that's uh, pro, pro, that's actually kind of talking from the book of Isaiah and uh, in Luke four, um, and what talking about the uh, you know Jesus fulfilling that passage in their hearing. Yeah, um, can you actually get to repentance, forgiveness of sins, Christ crucified for our sins, you know, raised again on the third day, you know, things like that? Release for the oppressed. Literally, you can imagine people celebrating after slavery, slavery. After 50 years, every slave's free. I can imagine there'd be a party. I mean, all debts forgiven. How would you like it if this was that year and your mortgage was forgiven? It was forgiven. That'd be a good news gospel. No wonder we can be in church and not have to endure a very long hour. Church is to be enjoyed. Yeah, again, the Jubilee year of the Old Testament and the forgiveness of all debts points to the gospel and our, the forgiveness of all of our debts to God through the shed blood of Christ who bled and died for them to be endured and that's because the message is powerful it's all about slaves being set free it's all about i agree slaves set free from what paul describes that in romans 6 and makes it clear that we're set free from slavery to sin you know being forgiven he literally has paid a debt i could never pay i agree what is that debt again paid a debt he did not owe my debt your debt. That's the beauty of the good news gospel. Yeah, again, I can you give me some specifics? What debt? How did I what caused this debt? Isaiah chapter fifty two, verse seven. It talks about people coming with the good news of victory at battle. It paints a picture of people in a besieged city hiding behind a wall, and I guess fearful looking out as messengers come. And the messengers they come with the message in their hand of a victory. And as they come in the mountains, the Bible says, how beautiful in the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. There's a Bible verse that says good news from a far country is like water to a thirsty soul. I agree. I mean, this this is exactly what it's like to receive the refreshing good news of the gospel. And so you're describing this glass of water, this cold water for the thirsty souls. You keep telling us how wonderful this glass of water is, and you're not letting anyone drink from the glass. This is weird. Yeah, the gospel, it is water to a thirsty soul. It is good news in Jesus' name. Not only do we have a gospel that's a good gospel, you've got a gospel to be proud of, nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to hide a light under a bushel for. Yeah, I, again, that's true about the gospel. Can you tell me what it is again, please? 
listen to it. It's powerful. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. It says, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, it begins like this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Amen. We should not be ashamed of it. Can you tell me what it is, please? I'd like to know what the gospel says. I need to know what the good news is. You're talking to, it's like you're talking around it and about it, but not actually preaching it. Weird. I am not ashamed. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. First the Jew and then also the Greek. It's not an exclusive gospel. It is for everyone. That's. I agree. Can you tell me what it is again, please? I am proud to belong to this glorious gospel. Young people, don't be ashamed. Hold your head up high. You have answers for people because of the glorious gospel. It's a gospel to be proud of. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Neither am I. Uh, Since you're not ashamed of it, would you actually tell people what it says? (laughs) Please. Power of God unto salvation, first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. It is a gospel for everyone. I believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a powerful gospel. Yeah, it, it's powerful, all right. Can you tell me what it says? What it, what, what's the message itself, please? Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. It says, we don't come to you with a gospel of words only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. It's a gospel of power. For the same reason, we're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God under salvation. And here the Bible... Yeah, I agree it is. What you've said about the gospel is true, but you haven't actually preached the gospel yet. Will you? We don't come to you with just a gospel of words. A gospel of words is empty. It doesn't change anything. Look, I could give you words like a bag of wind until there were no more winds left, but words won't change anything. <laughs> the gospel of God is the power of God. Into, the gospel is the power of God into salvation that we should require you to actually preach the gospel. And he hasn't done it, but he doesn't want to say it in words because they need to just be a bag of wind. And that's exactly what he's been this whole sermon, just a bag of wind, you know, slapping on all these accolades and, you know, talking wonderfully, wonderful truths, biblical truths about the gospel itself. But talking about the gospel is different than preaching the gospel. Somebody once said, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Because the power of the gospel is so much more than empty words. Yeah, the, no, you see, that's, that's just wrongheaded. Yeah, anytime you hear somebody say, oh, you know, there's this guy, maybe it was Francis of Assisi, and he didn't actually say it. You know, preach the gospel always, and, and if necessary, use words. That's ridiculous. That's not what the scriptures say. In fact, the apostles, they went out and preached the gospel, that, and they always used words to do so. So, yeah, this is, yeah, I, don't, I get the feeling we're not going to actually hear him preach the gospel. Wow. 
saying we don't just come to you with a gospel of words but one that is in power and that can come with full conviction in Jesus name I love what the scripture tells us in in the same verses in the message where it tells us the gospel will put steel in your convictions when the message the gospel we preach came to you it wasn't just words something happened in you the Holy Spirit put steel in your convictions you paid careful attention to the way we lived among you That's a powerful gospel. It can give you a backbone instead of a wishbone. It can give you something to be... Yeah, I agree. The gospel can do all of these amazing things. Will you actually preach it? (laughs) Wow. I mean, the weird thing is, is I mean, literally, like 99% of what he's saying is, is true. But he's not preaching the gospel. He's only talking about it. Out of the gospel. Amen. What a great thing, though, in a world where it is so easy to stumble and to compromise and to be pulled aside and to go astray, to believe for the power of the gospel to give you conviction of steel, like a backbone of steel, where you will stand up in Jesus' name and be bold in proclaiming the greatest of all news, the gospel. The gospel is beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. Y- yes, it is. This is true. We should never, ever, ever see the gospel as anything else but the wonderful, wonderful manifesto, message, dangerous declaration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, can you give me the words of that dangerous declaration and manifesto, please? Because you still haven't done that yet gospel the gospel can be proud of the gospel is powerful it's the gospel of god's kingdom and you know what the kingdom is if you think about king jesus he's not just a king he's the king above all kings he is preeminent that means he is eminent above all other eminencies and this is true also about jesus he is the king And in the scripture, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, again speaking about the gospel, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's right. So he read the words of Jesus and showed that Jesus was a preacher of the kingdom and that kingdom involved preaching repentance and believing the good news. This is true. So Jesus himself in Mark 1, 14 and 15, he was a preacher of repentance, forgiveness of sins, faith in the good news for the forgiveness of sins and right standing before God. Mark 1, 14, 15 absolutely says that about Jesus. Will Brian Houston preach repentance? And will he proclaim the gospel that Christ died for our sins? Well, let's see. Uh, So far, he keeps skirting the issue and talking about the gospel without preaching it. Turn around 180 degrees. Repent, turn around 180 degrees. There's a better way. There's a better future. But the Bible is talking about Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Simply the kingdom of God is everything that comes within God's realm. It's the king's realm. So if you think about everything, all the promise of God, all the beauty of God, all the blessing of God, everything that fits within the realm of God, that's the kingdom. Some people think we're on earth to build the kingdom. 
Not in one place does the Bible say that we are here to build the kingdom. The scripture tells us Jesus didn't come, it doesn't say he came to build the kingdom. It says he came preaching the kingdom. We've got a message which is the kingdom. It's all the realm of God. It's his blessing, it's his power, it's his promise, it's forgiveness, his goodness, his blessing, his prosperity. It's his free. Now, I'm not going to quibble with his definition. That's kind of a broad definition of kingdom, and you can do that with the kingdom. There's a narrow definition as well. But yeah, I'm, I, he keeps telling us all these superlatives about the gospel without preaching the gospel. He mentions it has something to do with debts forgiven, being set free from slavery, you know, forgiveness and stuff like that, but hasn't talked about Christ dying for our sins, calling sinners to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Strange, strange, weirdest gospel sermon I've heard literally in my entire life. But we continue. Shame, it's everything. It's the whole realm of God. That's the message. And if we did what Jesus said he would do, he preached the kingdom and he said, I will build my church. And a lot of people, they want to build the kingdom and don't want so much to be involved in the church. But if we live the way Jesus taught us to live, which is make the kingdom the message and live our lives for the building of the house of God, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing the spiritual house. Yeah, that sounds more like the law than the gospel to me. More God intends for it to be, then I believe this gospel can be working in your life because it is the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel comes with fullness and blessing. A gospel of fullness and blessing. Romans fifteen twenty nine. I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. The full gospel. I come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel. This, the gospel, is so filled with blessing. Overflowing blessing. Paul says, when I come, I'm coming and the fullness of the blessing of the God. Now, I hear sappy music playing very softly in the background. So cue sappy music. This is the emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the audience, getting ready to do business with people. I don't know what business he's going to do with them at this point because they haven't actually heard the gospel. They've heard a lot about it, but they haven't actually heard it. And I pray that we are committed to living in the fullness of the blessing of this gospel. Don't shrink it down. Look, I say don't be ashamed of the gospel. If the gospel was only limited to a few people, then maybe we would be ashamed of it. If it was a selective gospel, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Like a sports game. That's not the gospel. Man, I'd be ashamed of a gospel like... Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Because a lot of people, they persist in sin and unbelief and... They don't consider themselves worthy of eternal life. At least that's how the apostles talk about it in Acts. It's not just for a few. It's not just for the elect. It's not just for some small group who somehow think that they qualify. It's not for a whole lot of angry finger pointers who think, I'm in the gospel, but you're out of the gospel. No. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Could you actually preach the gospel so that we can hear it again, please? It is for all humanity. That's yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, the, the, the Christ died for the sins of the world. No problem with that. Can you actually def- preach the actual gospel? You just keep talking about it, but never actually giving it to us. 
power of the gospel in Jesus' name. And I want to preach it in fullness and in blessing. Well, I'm glad you want to preach it in fullness. Why don't you get to it then? I mean, you have the pulpit. No one's stopping you. Amen. Fullness and in blessing. When the prodigal son moved away from the father's blessing, from the word of the father, you think about it, he moved straight headlong into poverty. He ended up with the pigs. The gospel is all about the good news, bringing the poor to the fullness of the blessing of the gospel. Uh, so out of poverty then? This sounds like a slippery um, thing here. It sounds like he's kind of slipping the prosperity heresy. Weird. And perhaps the greatest of all poverties, at least the equal to physical poverty, is spiritual poverty. Yeah, I agree. Jesus talks a lot about spiritual poverty. Um, and the gospel does solve that problem, but you haven't actually preached it yet. You've just talked a lot about it. In Proverbs 10, verse 15, it says the destruction of the poor is in their poverty. Just think about that for a moment. If you think about spiritual poverty, poverty of soul. People who don't know the power of God. Poverty of soul. You think about the destruction of their potential. You think about the destruction of hope. You think uh, Destruction of their potential. Okay, this is getting weird. The destruction when it comes to the purpose and promise of God. You think about the destruction that comes with sin and the fallout that it causes. And I believe that... Okay, mention of sin there, okay. Poverty often is poverty of soul. Jesus said he came to bring good news to the poor. Yeah, he, he did. You know, there's a lot of good news for the poor and a soup kitchen may be reasonably good news. But I don't think that the best news for the poor is just directions to the soup kitchen. The best news for the poor is an answer to their poverty. It's poverty of soul, the best news is an answer to that poverty. The gospel, the fullness of the blessing of the gospel brings answers to the emptiness, to the impoverished souls. Okay, yeah, it, it does. Can you tell us what those answers are, please? People, the poverty itself has been their destruction. And within, they have the destruction of hope, the destruction of a God-given future, the destruction of potential, the destruction maybe even of good perspective. And in all of that, you think about what God can bring. You think about what God can do. I love it. In Proverbs 13, verse 23, it talks about the poor. And it says, there is much food in the fallow ground of the poor, literally the uncultivated ground of the poor. There's a whole lot of food in there, but because of lack of justice, there is waste. Think about that for a moment. Yeah, what exactly does this have to do with the gospel? Um, and why have you talked about it without actually preaching it? This doesn't make any sense to me at all. Think about spiritual poverty. You think about all of the fertile soil deep down within the souls of people from which God can bring so much fruitfulness, so much blessing. And many times because people that don't know the power of the gospel. So he's using that text to basically say you have all kinds of potential that's not being tapped into by God. That's a misuse of that proverb. In other words, in that way, there's a lack of justice. The justice of Jesus Christ in their life. 
They continue to live. I've been in countries where the soil is so fertile. The soil is beautiful, and yet there is such devastating poverty. Because the truth is, there is a lack of justice through either tyrants or dictators or a whole series of things that have held people bound. All of the potential of that soil stays in the ground. And that's how it is for some people in life. There is so much potential in them. There are people here and there is so much potential in you. There is so much there. And the destruction of your soul, an impoverished soul, literally means that so much of what is in there remains in the ground. But if you would open your life and open your heart to the power of the gospel, the glorious, wonderful gospel. Yeah, how am I supposed to open my heart to something that I don't even know what it is because you haven't preached the gospel yet? That is the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus, the good news that brings answers to the poor, that heals broken hearts, that sets at liberty those that are bound, that opens blind eyes, that preaches a year of jubilee, a year where slaves are set free, where all debt is forgiven, where it's a new day, it's a new beginning, it's the gospel. Never be ashamed. So now the benefits of the gospel without the... Gospel, weird. Of the glorious gospel. What a wonderful, wonderful manifesto. What a dangerous. Yeah, uh, manifesto, dangerous declaration. Still don't know what the declaration was or what the details of the manifesto are. To say, I'm living my life in the service of King Jesus. I'm living my life, living for the glorious gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there you go. That was the sermon entitled The Gospel by Brian Houston. And he had lots to say about the gospel without actually preaching the gospel. Strange. Bizarre. Weird. Um, Yeah, I think we've made the point there and kind of beaten it to death. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>